0: This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. Our eyes and ears will be on the state capitol this week as lawmakers reconvene for the 2016 session. Today, tomorrow, and Wednesday, we'll talk with the most powerful people under the dome about their agendas. Colorado's Democratic governor is our guest Wednesday, the leader of the House, also a Democrat, joins us tomorrow. Today, it's the Senate president, Republican Bill Cadman of Colorado Springs, I asked him what he wants this session to be remembered for.
1: I think uh, in a split legislature, you want to be remembered for absolutely putting the best face on government and letting people know that their government is working for them. And I think especially as you're looking at a significant political year coming up with a presidential election and the U.S. Senate election in this state, showing that there is some place that is more collaborative and less contentious.
0: Can you give us an example of something you'd like to find collaboration on?
1: Well, I mean, part of this uh, the challenge this year is the budget, just like it is every year. And that budget is produced by a bipartisan committee. And when the number one thing that you do is spend the people's money, coming up with something that shows the most support from both parties in both houses, I think represents that collaboration.
0: So the governor released his proposed budget, and Mm -hmm. in November, members of the Senate Republican Caucus responded with a letter. Uh, One line in it read that there weren't many surprises in the governor's requests, but, quote, They demonstrate that a lot of underlying problems still exist with regard to prioritizing funding and fundamentally reforming the unsustainable growth of government programs that are not performing as well as they should. What is an example in your mind of a government program that isn't working as it should?
1: I'll give you an example of a government program that is growing to the detriment of dollars for every other program. And that is in, in Health and Human Services or in Healthcare, which is Colorado's Medicaid program. That is now providing for 1.2 million people. It's grown 350 percent over the last 14 years. A program that's grown 350 percent when the population has grown 22 percent, K 12 population's grown around 22 percent, the prison population's grown around a similar number. The general fund has grown around 50%. When you have a program that grows 350% and is so disproportionate to everything else in the budget, it creates an immense amount of pressure on everything else. So regardless of its performance, the affordability is the greatest challenge of something that is now taking up about 39% of general fund. And general fund is, is the core of money, that state government uses to fund virtually everything. So some of that
0: Medicaid expansion is covered by the federal government under Obamacare. In terms of the state dollars being spent, what is the solution there? Is it kicking people off Medicaid who depend on it for their health care or what?
1: You know, there are some examples of people that are becoming or states that are finding more efficiencies in providing to those who need it the most. And frankly, we need to follow those models. And and the reality is you can't help more people if you're bankrupting the system that's in place to help them. And we have grown this system so much that it's not just a safety net for the most vulnerable. It's become a virtual permanent for uh, folks who could afford Healthcare in the marketplace Had it not been so distorted and destroyed Frankly under Obamacare And this isn't just The money that I'm talking about Has almost nothing to do With the federal Medicaid expansion But it is about to have A lot of effect on the budget Because as you are aware The 100% that the federal government Was covering on their side Of the Medicaid expansion Is starting to shrink The numbers that I'm quoting Are from Colorado opting into Expanding Colorado Medicaid, above and beyond. So if the federal Medicaid expansion is Obamacare, we could certainly call this Hickenlooper Care and Ritter Care because they were the two, obviously the current governor and the previous governor, that have presided over these years when I've mentioned these monumental increases in funding. And they, they are competing, and like I said, they're cannibalizing other programs. And just to give you an idea, we have a constitutional requirement to provide funding for K through 12 at a specific level. We're a billion dollars short of that every year for the last few years. So we are virtually violating the constitutional requirement for this funding at a time when we're optionally increasing funding for Medicaid. Let me say that the expansion in
0: Medicaid on a state level happened in part because of something called the hospital provider fee. Uh, This is a fee that hospitals agreed to pay to draw down federal matching funds to treat people who don't have insurance. Yes. The governor thinks that the state would be better off budgetarily if this hospital fee were taken out from under TABOR, the Taxpayer Bill of Rights. Yes. An effort to change this formula failed in the final days of the last session, uh, but it remains a priority for the governor. Do you see room for compromise
1: there? The the answer on this has already been determined. The people did not see room for compromise on this because what they were trying to do is not a legal or constitutionally allowed government business, which we do have in the state. Unfortunately, this does not meet that criteria. You're saying that taking the hospital fee out from under Tabor
0: creates a a kind of government-backed business, if you will, that you think is unconstitutional.
1: Yes. This is not my opinion. This is the opinion of the two dozen constitutional attorneys that work for the Colorado General Assembly. And in the 16 years of being in the legislature, I've never seen a legal opinion so adamant that any proposal that enterprised this specific fee would be unconstitutional. And so does that mean you don't see room for compromise on this? It's a non-starter because the people have already said it's a non-starter. This is not me, the Republican leader. This is not the Senate president saying this. The Constitution said this is a non-starter.
0: On the subject of the budget, um, Democratic Senator from Lakewood, Andy Kerr, would like to ask voters to keep excess tax revenue to fund all-day kindergarten in Colorado He says that Colorado spends far less on kindergartners than students in other grades. Uh, What do you think?
1: You know, there actually have been uh, some localities that have funded full-day kindergarten in their areas. And trusting the people that come into this building from all over the state to understand the intricacies of every district, I I think, leaves something to be desired usually. So I'm, I'm certainly more trusting of local government. Uh, solving problems that it sees as its priorities and and putting its funding in those areas, and you you see that all across the state on measures that you know um, provide for local taxes and funding and transportation districts and uh, you name it. I mean, I live in one of the most conservative areas in the state, and virtually every local taxing issue that's come up over the last decade or so people have passed because they can actually see their money going into their communities to solve their problems.
0: Doesn't that, though, create um, some inequality? That is to say that a kindergartner then in one part of the state might have access and that one in another doesn't.
1: Well, I think it certainly creates public policy laboratories where people can see what works and emulate it. And if it's not working, uh, refuse it. Your fellow
0: Republicans in the House announced what's at the top of their agenda, which is focused on business and the economy. And mm-hmm. one, one policy proposal they're backing has to do, they say, with affordable housing, and that's to finally pass a condo construction defects bill, yes, uh, making it harder for HOAs to sue builders. Uh, but even the GOP sponsor of that legislation last year acknowledged on CPR that it's not guaranteed to spur affordable housing, that that is merely the hope. Um, sure. What's your view, and is this a priority?
1: Well, you know, if we could find guarantees in anything, I'd invest in them. So <laughs> I, I think it's okay to speculate on what the opportunity would present itself if we could pass this. And it's not just me saying this. We have had countless community leaders, mayors, Democrats and Republicans, builders, Developers, citizens talk about the prohibitions and the hurdles in Colorado to building multifamily housing. I even listened to testimony from a developer that showed plans of what could become available if they knew that they had a chance in the marketplace without this extreme litigation.
0: Planned Parenthood has been at the center of controversy, especially here in Colorado, over fetal tissue. Uh, although the State Department of Public Health has found no reason to investigate, and the governor has said that any further inquiries would be a waste of taxpayer money, uh, you were named in a letter from the Alliance Defending Freedom last July, which called on you to work to defund Planned Parenthood. Given the makeup of the House and the Democrat that is uh, uh, sitting in the governor's chair, something like that would be unlikely to be successful. But is it something that you want to pursue?
1: You know, what, what we really want to pursue is making sure that taxpayer money doesn't pay for abortion. That's the bottom line. And frankly, that's what our law provides. And that's the protection we want to ensure. And what's really important to us is when you're providing funding to any entity that may be using those funds to violate that requirement, that's important to all of us. Because if one entity can do it in this instance, then any entity could abuse that access to to public funds for virtually anything. So I think that's a responsibility, that's a fiduciary responsibility of anybody in public office to make sure that the taxpayer dollar is spent how they are are being promised it's being spent and, and, frankly, protecting it from being spent in ways that are prohibited.
0: And you're not convinced, as uh, others uh, in the Hickenlooper administration are, that that is not occurring?
1: You know, I I wish I had a crystal ball. So I don't think I can be as adamantly convinced that it is as they are adamantly convinced that it isn't. (laughs) But it doesn't mean it's not still our responsibility to ensure that those protections for the tax dollar are made.
0: In past sessions, Republicans have sponsored bills to roll back gun restrictions. Such measures are unlikely to pass the democratically controlled House, and if they did, would almost certainly be vetoed by the governor. Uh, will we see such attempts again?
1: You know, I can't really uh, cite specific bills because they're confidential until introduced, but anything that you've seen before, you might see again. But it doesn't sound like a
0: personal priority for you, Senator.
1: You know, I, uh, <clears throat> I actually have the... Uh, uh, the responsibility to manage all the bills. So when it comes down to anything specific like that, I don't usually get involved, at least not, not as the president. But uh, that doesn't mean I wouldn't support a revisiting of some of these issues that I have opposed over my you know, 15 years here.
0: In November, 13 Republican state senators and 24 Republican representatives signed a letter asking the governor to halt the refugee program. Uh, for fear that terrorists could enter as refugees.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Since then, uh, it's been stated by many that governors don't have the power to say yes or no to a refugee program. It's a federal program. But will you be looking to legislate anything on that issue?
1: You know, I, that, that is always on the table because public safety is our number one concern. So I I think uh it's such a a new issue. It, it's taken a lot of folks by surprise and we're all digging into it. So I don't have the answers yet, but the questions are still being asked and certainly the concerns are being generated, but the bottom line is we're we're being told to trust a government to protect us that's not really focused on doing the same for us, right? This is the same government that said if you want to keep your health care, you can keep it. If you want to keep your health insurance, you can keep it. If you want to keep your doctor, you can keep it. They said the this is the same government that used our own IRS to go after conservative groups. This is the same government that said our data was secured, and, and now they say trust us. I think the record is pretty clear that they're not that good at what they say they can do, and it's, it's our right to be skeptical.
0: Thank you, Senator. You bet. Republican Bill Cadman of Colorado Springs is president of the state Senate. Tomorrow, hear the Democratic Speaker of the House, Dickie Lee Hullinghorst. And then on Wednesday, the first day of session, the governor is our guest. He'll also deliver his State of the State speech this week. Coming up, the people you meet and the stories you hear hiking the Colorado Trail. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. You're with Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Morner. Take a nearly five hundred mile walk from Durango to Denver, and you'll meet a lot of interesting characters. That's what David Fanning discovered last summer when he hiked the Colorado Trail and recorded some of his encounters.
2: Today I woke up around two. Yeah. Cause I, I thought I heard dogs barking. Not like grown dogs, but like puppies. Uh huh. And I was like, Oh, Oh, I bet you heard coyotes. I hope not, because because when I thought about it, my mind. I oh, know must be some movie I watched a long time ago. <laughs> I thought about these coyotes, like just sitting outside waiting on me. <laughs> this is my heart that I and I was just like, "Look."
3: I was a little cynical about humanity, and I just got laid off from my job. Um, I love trail running, and I love being outside, and I just wanted to get some clarity and figure out my purpose. Um, but I've gained much more than that. Before Silverton, when you're up really high, uh-huh. and you're just like. I just am so hungry. And so, you going to finish that? In, you're gonna finish Are you going to finish that? I was going to finish that. I was going to lick the bag. So,
4: yeah. David
3: Fanning, who lives
0: in Fort Collins, is collecting stories and photos for a new book inspired in part by the popular blog Humans of New York, which profiles uh, random New Yorkers. And welcome to the program. Thanks, Ryan. You talked with about 100 people along the Colorado Trail. Who stands out to you the most? Well,
5: uh, some of the ones that you just uh, had the clips on there, Blackhawk was a a first-time hiker, uh, first time he'd ever been outdoors. He'd spent one night outside in his entire life. Uh, He'd gone to REI, he'd gotten the wrong advice on gear, he was carrying too much stuff, and he was struggling. Uh, but he was so much fun to talk to.
0: You call him Blackhawk, not, not by his first and last name.
5: Most people went by trail names on the trail, and I gave them the option of telling me their trail name or telling me their real name. Most people gave me a trail name.
0: I see. What's your trail name? Raywa Ranger. Raywa Ranger. Right. All right. So this is either a name you adopt yourself or that some give you. Yes. Okay. Usually usually
5: people give a name, get a name on the trail for some something they've done or something of the sort. I ran into one guy who told me that he gave himself a name on the Appalachian Trail because if he um, didn't give us na- a name, they were going to call him Never Shuts Up. <laughs>
0: <laughs> he thought he'd had that one off at the pass and <laughs> named right. himself. All right. So there's Blackhawk, who is really a, a brand-new climber and, I suppose, decided to take on the Colorado Trail. Who else stands out in your mind? Um, the
5: two uh, women that you uh, talked to there, Ava and Perrin, were, were sisters, young young um, college students from uh, Michigan. And, uh, oh, my gosh, I spent the whole—I I must have spent 45 minutes with them just laughing, laughing, laughing. They had the funniest stories about hiking on the trail. Like what? They were talking about going down to um, a Cataract Lake, and you come down off a mountain into this valley where there's the lake.
0: And this is roughly where
5: this is kind of in the um, San Juan Mountains okay. in southern Colorado. And uh, they didn't realize that there was a trail down to the lake, so they started off into the willows, bushwhacking down to the lake. And they were going, "This is no way to get to the lake. What is this going on?" And uh, so anyway, they camped in the willows, and then the next morning they got up and they hiked back up the mountain to get back to the trail. And then they realized the trail goes right down past the lake. And they were laughing and laughing and (laughs) laughing about that. A
0: lot of extra energy expended on that day (laughs) of the trail. I want to talk just a little bit more about Blackhawk, whom we heard from in the beginning. Um, This is a gentleman from Dallas. And as you said, he hadn't had much experience hiking. He's afraid of coyotes. Lightning apparently also freaked him out. He says he only spent one night outside as a kid. What did you learn from him?
5: Well, it took me back to when I first started hiking um, a long, long time ago. But I remember my first hike was a 400-mile hike in Oregon, actually. Uh, I didn't know anything about backpacking. I didn't know anybody who went backpacking.
0: You just dove in, I just dove in.
5: And, of course, I did everything wrong. Um, And uh, so I really saw in him some of my own um, experience and how I got interested in backpacking. And he was he, he was doing things wrong. He was scared to death. He I don't think he'd slept at night because of the sounds that he that were going on outside of his tent. Um, and I assured him that 95% of those sounds were just small rodents and that made him feel a little better. Oh.
0: Is that true? <laughs> yeah. Well, oh, that's really comforting, actually. <laughs> yeah. He had apparently overpacked. He overpacked. Um, and he, he had he... about
5: 5 books. He must have had He must have had an entire library in his pack.
0: Books that I guess he was never actually going to read on the trail, but had just in case. Um, he had a great story about looking for a camping spot. He came upon a bench along the Colorado Trail, and the bench had a name. It's called Lenny's Rest. That's right.
2: I got to Lenny's Rest. and I said, "Man, can I camp here?" <laughs> I was like, "The ground's kind of hard. The book doesn't say it's a camping <laughs> spot. How do I even know it's safe?" And so I read. I read the the bench. Yeah. And it was saying how like the kid was 18. I think he might have been an Eagle Scout. Uh huh. He had all these skills, but they said he died. And I was like. In my mind, it was already like eight o'clock at night. I'm like, "What did he die from? Like, was he here? Like, I was like, I you know what? It's probably, it's probably um, better if I just keep going.'"
0: So he thought sleeping on this bench might be safer, and then he finds out it's a memorial bench for a scout who died. What made you look to the Colorado Trail for characters?
5: Well. I had uh, done a, a hike through uh, Colorado uh, in 1981. My wife and I had hiked the length of Colorado along the Continental Trail. This was in a, the days when there was no trail uh, there, and we just pieced together a trail. But I had gotten into the San Juans, and I always said to myself, I am going to go back there. Um, but uh, two years ago, we had a sort of a medical emergency, a medical situation, and my Wife and I had four days to think about how our lives might really seriously change while the lab reports were coming back, and I, so we, we had this discussion about what we wanted to do, and Carol's a biology teacher. She wants to go to the Galapagos Islands. We're going there this summer. Uh, I wanted to get back in the San Juans because I'd promised myself I'd be back there, and uh, so I, I decided I would hike the Colorado Trail to get back there, and uh, it was a spur-of-the-moment thing. I just picked up a pack, grabbed some food, and off I went. How's Carol? Carol's great. I mean, there wasn't. It, it turned out we got good news from the doctor, unexpectedly good news. But now we can live our lives in a different way. We can, you know, fulfill those promises that we, we said we were going to do.
0: And so you hit the Colorado Trail and started gathering stories. How did that idea occur to you?
5: Well, so um, in 2014, I hiked the trail uh, by myself, but I ran into two other people uh, to hike with, two other solo hikers, uh, a 34-year-old woman and a 19-year-old kid. And uh, and I'm 63. The three of us are the most unlikely group of people to hike together. But we had such a good time um, that I just said, this trail is absolutely terrific. It was the best hiking experience of my life. So I said, I'm going to do this again. But I wanted to interview hikers for a book. I'd like to write a book about the Colorado Trail. So I decided to hike it in the opposite direction from Durango to Denver. Mm. And I ran into, oh, several hundred hikers uh, in, the, in the month I was out there.
0: Many of them told you about trail angels. Explain that concept.
5: A lot of times, well, there, there's a real community on the trail. Um, and a lot of times the the mountain folk in those trail communities uh, will do nice things for hikers uh, for no other reason than they want to be helpful. Like what? Well, they'll, they'll set out... Um, a cooler, and that will be full of drinks, Gatorade, and and sometimes beer. I've had beer on the trail um, for no charge. No I, charge. I gather you just pick it up, and and uh, usually you leave some kind of a thank you note. Uh, but off you go,
0: and they know that there are hikers coming through, and they just do nice things to to ease the way. That's right. Yeah. You talked to a guy who went by the name Clip. That was his trail name. And that was because he walked fast. (laughs) And he talked about the spiritual aspect of hiking. The whole reason I did the hike was was just to to step away from reality for a bit, you know. I, I think oftentimes we get too busy and we don't have a chance to just stop and think and
5: reflect and you know have time for introspection. And so, my wife has asked me several times since I've been out, you know, well, what do you what do you think about? And and to be honest with you, I mean, there, there's a lot
0: of thinking, but then there's a lot of just not thinking. I love that idea that you might hit the trail thinking that you're going to be thinking <laughs> yes. and, you know, maybe solving problems in your life or figuring out your next career move. But what Clip said there was it's just as important to not think.
5: I think for me, one of the, the most beneficial aspects of doing a long hike is the not thinking. You just walk. You know, you, <clears throat> you get to the end of the day and you sit down on a log and you start to get your dinner ready and you think, what have I thought about today? And the answer is always the same. Not one darn thing. Uh, I just walked. I just put one foot in front of the other. And there's something that is space clearing. It, it, it clears out a space for you to solve, I think, some of the, the issues that, that you're dealing with in your life.
0: Did most of the people you ran into come from other states? Did they come from abroad? Were they Coloradans exploring their own state? What's the makeup? I would
5: say that probably 60% of the people were from Colorado. Hmm. Uh, another 20% were from um, you know, states around Colorado, nearby. Uh, a lot of people from overseas. I ran into a Swiss, uh, somebody from England, uh, somebody from Spain. So uh, the trail is beginning to get well-known.
0: Did anyone refuse to talk to you?
5: Yes, one person refused to talk to me, but I think he was with a woman who was not his wife.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Well, that'll make fodder for you. (laughs) Would you say you are a better hiker, a better person for having done this?
5: You know, hiking changes you in unexpected ways. It um, it really makes um, it makes living the rest of your life different in, in a very real way.
0: Thanks for being with us. Appreciate it. Thanks. David Fanning is from Fort Collins, and there's a link to his website with more stories from the Colorado Trail at cprnews.org. He's also working on a book about the experience. Still to come, a Denver filmmaker on the origins of Star Wars. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. It's Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. The new Star Wars movie has broken nearly every box office record. There has been an awakening. Have you felt it? To bring the Star Wars franchise to life, director George Lucas drew inspiration from other movies and from ancient storytelling traditions. That's the focus of a new series at the Denver Film Society. It's called Star Wars Origins of the Force. Colorado filmmaker Alexander Philippe is about as close as you can get to a Lucas scholar. He made a documentary called The People vs. George Lucas, and it was about how fans turned on Lucas Uh, Philippe will co-present this series, Origins of the Force. Welcome to the program. Thank you. Your month-long series starts Wednesday, and you're going to show films and shows that inspired George Lucas. That's right. Like the 1930s sci-fi serials Buck Rogers and Flash Gordon.
2: You're losing, Your Majesty. Better make terms while you can. If I lose, you and your friends will never live to see it. Take the prisoners once to the Tunnel
0: of Terror the tunnel of terror you call these space operas That's right. what is a space opera and how did they inspire lucas
6: well essentially you know i think the best way to look at a space opera it's melodrama in space you know with a little bit of uh, you know swashbuckling action adventure sort of mixed in so it's not it's not really what you would consider science fiction you know they get they get facts wrong for
0: instance you yes. point out that Uh, you would not hear the sound of a spacecraft in space. And yet, of course, that's a sound that is often playing in the background of these TV shows and movies.
6: There you go. And, you know, and that's that's obviously not the point of, you know, of a space opera. The the whole point is to just, uh, you know, provide this amazing sort of fun action adventure for the whole family.
0: All right. So those were absolutely, those television series were absolutely a... An inspiration to George Lucas, another film that inspired Lucas was from 1958, called Hidden Fortress by the Japanese director Akira Kurosawa. (laughs) Clearly someone is in distress there. Yes. Lucas admired Kurosawa's camera techniques. That shows up in Star Wars uh, more specifically, that film we heard a clip from Hidden
6: Fortress was a huge inspiration, I guess for the original trilogy. are there a lot of similarities there's actually a lot um you know the the sort of the most striking one is the uh you know you, you get to experience a story from the point of view of the two sort of you know lowliest characters who uh will eventually become c three p o and r two d two in uh you know in in the star wars movie uh, but there's actually numerous influences also, uh, that you see in the early versions of the screenplay of Star Wars, which at the time was called The Star Wars.
0: The Star Wars. The okay. Star
6: Wars. and uh, But we'll certainly be talking about this during the series, yeah. I understand that the word Jedi comes from a
0: Japanese term.
6: Yeah, Jidai Geki, exactly, which is, uh, which is essentially the a genre of, uh, of samurai sort of filmmaking. Yeah, yeah I see. And
0: is that the type of film that Kurosawa would have made, or that's just a different genre.
6: Yeah, no, he did. He did some of them. Um, and uh, I mean, you know, we can talk for ages about, you know, George Lucas sort of borrowing phrases. I mean, even the force the the, the you know, comes from uh, a very obscure uh, Canadian short film, uh, 2187, uh, which, uh, you know... Uh, came out in the late 60s. So he's been borrowing a lot from a lot of different sources.
0: And the the force in that film was the same as the force in the Star
6: Wars? No, it's just basically film? mentioned. It's actually, it's, a, it's an experimental Canadian uh, short film. Uh, and it's just a phrase that uh, George Lucas kind of latched onto. Huh. Yeah. Then there is THX 1138. This
0: is Lucas's 1971 debut feature film. It's set in the future in a dystopian society. People have... Numbers instead of names, mm-hmm. human emotions and free will are illegal, and they're subdued by medication. and then a man and woman stop taking their drugs, they have sex, which isn't frowned upon, and they end up on the run from authorities.
2: All Earth Council in its infinite wisdom, has decided these two numbers are to be disposed of. The biochemical forum has demands to make on their parts, however, before they are eliminated. That's the kind of efficiency that makes you proud to live in this era.
0: Now, I think if you asked 10 people about THX 1138, nine of them wouldn't recognize it necessarily. That was initially, though, supposed to be a multi-picture deal for Warner Brothers. Correct. Uh, But studio executives pulled back after watching the completed film, not what you want to hear afterwards. Why did they step back?
6: Uh, You know, actually, I do not know that. No. 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 What I what don't.
0: do you what do you think when you see THX 1138?
6: Well, you know, it's uh to me THX is a really interesting movie to look at because it's uh, it's an it's an early sort of pure version of what George Lucas really was about as a, you know, as as a filmmaker. I mean, I think he was always interested in experiment experimentation, uh not really particularly interested in stories, which It's so interesting to me that he became this guy who gave us the myth of our generation. And of course, Joseph Campbell is really responsible for that. But, you know, when you start looking at the prequel trilogy, uh, I think uh, to me, this is kind of Lucas going back to his roots, to his origins and, you know, perhaps not being so much interested in the story, but more interested in the form. I
0: wonder if that's why it didn't fly with studio executives. Well, there's that. You mentioned Joseph Campbell. Say more about
4: that.
6: Well, I mean, Joseph Campbell obviously really saw patterns in storytelling from, you know, tales, uh, you know, global tales, you know, from around the world and saw that there were certain uh, elements of the stories that would repeat themselves across cultures, you know, cultures that back in the day were not even aware of each other's existence. That there were so, universal themes. Yeah. Exactly. Universal themes, universal ideas, universal um, archetypes. Um, and so that's, you know, something you can see in his book, The the Hero of a uh, Thousand Faces. Um, and he, you know, uh, obviously trained in a way George Lucas um, and it's really interesting to look at the evolution of Star Wars from the early drafts of the screenplay to what it eventually became. Why do you think it has become such a hit? Well, you know, it's uh, Star Wars was, as I said, you know, the myth for certainly my generation. You know, we were raised with that. But there was, I think, the stroke of genius from George was uh, giving us the toys. Uh, this, okay. The, the know, toys associated with the film. Absolutely. Had that just not been tried before? Well, not to that extent. I think George was a real sort of visionary in terms of making sure that every character, every spaceship, every creature in his universe was going to be available. And so when you're, you know, eight years old or six years old and you've just seen Star Wars and you have to wait – you know, now two or three years for the next installment, which is like basically half of your life. (laughs) Um, So what do you do? You go home and you start playing with the toys and you start speculating and thinking about, you know, what that next episode is going to be like. And so what it does is it essentially made us a play in George's sandbox from a very early age. And so it created that very sort of tactile, Hmm. uh, very tangible relationship with the universe.
0: I loved my R2-D2 figure. Oh, my goodness, I was yeah. inseparable.
6: <laughs>
0: uh, one more film that Lucas drew inspiration from uh, is called Metropolis. It's a 1927 German science fiction silent film. Uh, the score actually will be played live as part of the series you're doing at the Sea Film Center February 3rd. This picture has dystopian themes similar to Star Wars. And I understand it also influenced how Star Wars showed the aesthetics of a robot.
6: Yeah, I mean, obviously, if you look at the poster of Metropolis, you'll see that, you know, iconic robot which inspired Rolf McQuarrie to create uh, at least an early version of C-3PO. I mean, there's a very clear sort of inspiration there. But uh you know it's also this this notion that you know you've got people living in this kind of city under the city who are you know the the hands so to speak and then the the upper class are the mind and the whole idea of metropolis which I think is really beautiful is that you need this kind of mediator bec- between the hands and and you know and the mind which is the heart um and you know that you know To me, you extrapolate that to Star Wars, and that's the Force, you know? The Force sort of binds the galaxy and binds the universe together.
0: And the moment you integrate the heart in the story, it has to be about storytelling. It can't just be about concept. Absolutely. In a way. Absolutely. Okay. You have been very kind by saying that George Lucas borrowed and was (laughs) inspired by and looked to. Is he a thief?
6: Ah, you know that's that's uh, that's a question that we will be exploring, I think, at length during this series. Because George Lucas is is obviously fascinates me. I've been fascinated with him for for a long time, and you can go around and around, and you can go back and forth on this. Um, there is actually something that I will show during the series that. Uh, to me is more evidence for him being a thief. And that is when you look at the opening of Raiders of the Lost Ark. Okay. uh, And then you compare that with an early Scrooge comic, which is literally panel for panel, the exact sequence, the exact opening sequence from Raiders Raiders of the Lost Ark, including, you know, the idol and the boulder and and all that stuff. Um, It's incredible to me that you would just take that and turn it into a film. And what is The comic? Uh, Scrooge, Scrooge, like yeah. the Dickens story, exactly.
0: Yeah, fascinating.
6: No, no, no. The uh, you know Scrooge McDuck, the uh... Scrooge McDuck. Yes, Sorry. I see
0: from uh, <laughs> from
6: Ducktales, kind yes, of thing. exactly. Disney.
0: Okay. Uh, thanks so much for being with us, of course, and uh, giving us the tip of the iceberg when oh, it yes. comes to George, George Lucas, <laughs> Alexander Philippe, a Denver filmmaker, and on Wednesday he launches a series with the Denver Film Society called Star Wars: Origins of the Force. Now, the musical score for Star Wars also stands on the shoulders of giants, as we're going to hear now from host at CPR Classical, Carla Walker. Hi, Carla. Hi, Ryan. And it all, of course, starts with this.
3: The main theme from the original Star Wars, all the soundtracks for all seven Star Wars movies were written by John Williams. And Ryan, he has continued to build on these original themes and create new ones, but when you listen to the soundtracks, especially from the first three movies, they are full of references to classical pieces, and they have provided all sorts of fun for people like me, music geeks like me, who try to find their classical cousins. So the theme that we just heard, that original theme to Star Wars, it is seared into our brains, right? But if you are a movie buff from the 30s and 40s, you might remember a movie called King's Row, which sounds quite similar.
0: Yeah, that's uncanny, isn't it?
3: It's similar. It's not note for note, but it's very, very similar in its essence. And that was written by the great film score composer Eric Kornbold.
0: Why would John Williams do this?
3: You know, basically he was asked to. Um, George Lucas hired John Williams on the advice of his friend Steven Spielberg right after Spielberg and Williams had made Jaws. And Lucas told Williams, he said, Star Wars is an old-fashioned movie and I want a big, grand orchestral score like Korngold used to write for these big swashbuckling movies like Robin Hood or Seahawk, these big movies from the 30s and 40s. And that's the sound that he wanted. In fact, Lucas, when he was writing Star Wars, he was listening to classical music, and he put together a dummy score with these pieces all in order. So when he and Williams sat down, he played the pieces for Williams, and he said, this is what I want. Can you give me this?
0: He was very specific. And how is that not plagiarizing someone else's work?
3: Well, in classical music, Ryan, there is a long tradition of composers borrowing from each other. You know, the idea of copyright didn't exist for musicians basically until about the 1920s. Um, So many people borrowed from other composers. Brahms, Mahler, all borrowed from Beethoven. So – Pieces that are written after about 1923 are protected by copyright, and some of the pieces that Williams used are before then, but some of them come after the copyright laws as well. But as far as I know, if anyone has ever – any of these estates of these composers, uh, if they've sued John Williams, it's never been reported on. But I want to make clear that while Williams is standing on the shoulders of giants, he is a giant – himself. He, he took these themes, and they're very small. They're snippets, and then he built them into something completely different.
0: Why don't we hear another example?
3: Sure. This is from uh, another recognizable movie, The Empire Strikes Back.
0: Nothing good can happen when that theme is
3: playing. <laughs> exactly. It says war, doesn't it? it does. Those drums. Well, it's no coincidence that it sounds a little like Mars, the bringer of war from the planets by Gustav Holst. very menacing right
0: it is indeed
3: (laughs) sounds very similar but it's also this darth vader theme so it's infused with that but it's also infused with what's called the funeral march from a chopin piano sonata
0: Slower, but if you yeah. if you speed that up, you basically have that theme exactly from Darth Vader exactly. I think it's safe to say that Star Wars would not be what it is, what it was without the music.
3: Absolutely, there's this great video that you can Google, and it's the scene from the throne room in the in the final uh, the final scene of the first movie where uh, Han and Chewbacca and Luke Skywalker are walking down the center aisle to get their award from Princess Leia, but the video is without the music. So it's, just, <laughs> so it's just them walking and their facial expressions. And it's so incredibly cheesy. So, you know, John Williams is a giant in his own right.
0: Thanks, Carla, for being with us. Thank you. Carla Walker hosted CPR Classical. Coming up next, coping with grief through a video game. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. It's Colorado Matters. I'm Ryan Warner. After a man learned his young son had brain cancer, he did something unexpected. Ryan Green of Loveland created a video game. That Dragon Cancer comes out tomorrow. CPR arts reporter Corey Jones visited with the Greens while the game was under development. Despite the game's title,
7: there is no dragon to defeat. Instead, creator Ryan Green says the dragon is a metaphor for Cancer.
0: There's this idea that dragons are greedy
7: and that they would be jealous for their possession, right? And so Cancer kind of seems like this jealous thing where its quest to live chokes everything else out. That dragon, Cancer, memorializes Joel, who died last year. He was five. This game, says Green, reimagines the family's experience with Joel.
6: These different creative outlets are how we process our feelings and how we process what we're going through and what we're learning at the time. And it's pretty important to us to create in the midst of our struggle.
7: It's an adventure point-and-click style game. You navigate scenes and try things in different scenarios, like pushing Joel on a swing or calming him as he cries. It's a real take on the family's journey. Ryan's wife, Amy, says sometimes the game doesn't give players many choices.
3: I think that's frustrating for some
6: people who play the game, but I think it really resonates with other people because Mm -hmm. that is what our situation was like.
7: Some scenes in the game transport you back to the family's most difficult moments, like this one. Uh, This is towards the end of probably the second act of the game, and you're in a hospital room. In that room, two doctors tell Amy and Ryan that Joel's brain tumor is back. The cancer is terminal. Well, it's in the frontal cortex. Now the camera is inside of Amy's head and you're able to look around and observe the conversation while it happens. So there just aren't any treatment options that are curative. In the video game, rain starts to fall inside the room. Soon, it's a downpour. And as the water rises, you find yourself in a lifeboat with Joel. It's kind of conveying this idea that We've just been thrown into kind of a deep end. The Greens have invested nearly three years, and the family's savings, into the game. The project earned more than $100,000 on Kickstarter. Brooklyn-based filmmaker David Ossett co-directed a documentary about the game, Thank You for Playing, premiered at the Tribeca Film Festival last week. Ossett says he was struck by gamers hugging Green and talking about their own experiences with loss
5: and the fact that a video game was capable of engendering that kind of conversation was really staggering and surprising. It was creating a dialogue in the space where there's kind of an absence of emotional
7: sharing. The game has its critics, though. In one scene in the documentary, Green reads an online comment that calls his game self-indulgent.
4: And it keeps annoying me
7: that Joel's dad is turning his struggle into a piece of interactive entertainment. It's like making a
0: video of your kid dying and then posting it on YouTube.
7: Video game developer Megan Fox runs the Colorado Independent Game Developers Association. She says that dragon, Cancer, is a game that could win awards. But she questions if people will buy it.
5: It's in this weird place where I think it'll make a really amazing art project, but I have absolutely
7: no idea how it's going to do commercially. I don't know, which is why I have immense respect for it. Back in their Loveland home, the Greens play a board game with their three young boys. Who wants to be Blue Caleb, who's nine, says he still has mixed emotions about his brother Joel.:
4: It kind of sadly brings me back to like more of the kind of sad parts, and I feel like it's getting slightly harder to remember the happy things that happened:
7: So Caleb is glad that Dragon cancer, captures Joel's happier times too, like his love for dogs. The greens say they want to make a video game that's emotional, raw, and genuine. And that means including other real elements of life, like love and laughter.
6: Remember that time that we blew that whistle and Joel just cracked up? <laughs> Remember that time? And oh man, I wish he could just know what it was like to make Joel laugh. That matters. That's the space in between the whole story.
7: Green says through this video game, he hopes to show people that even in the midst of hardship, there are moments of grace. I'm Corey Jones,
0: CPR News. So there will be a film about the Green family, which will air on PBS later this year. Director Malika Zwali-Worol told me that this sort of empathy gaming is a trend.
4: One thing that we pretty quickly discovered was that that there is a kind of larger movement around this topic. So uh, video game designers who are increasingly wanting to document personal and emotional experiences with the goal of, um, as in any art form, enabling a player or a spectator to connect with um, profound experiences. Um, and so there are a number of other games, and we're actually working on another project that's kind of beginning to look into some of these other games that are also exploring similarly difficult um, experiences. There's a, a video game called Never Ending Nightmares about... Dealing with obsessive compulsive disorder and depression. Um, oh, wow. uh, another video game called Popo and Yo that deals with, um, that explores the topic of living with an alcoholic father as a young child. So um, Ryan and Amy Green and Josh Larson, their co-creator, are very much, they're not working in a vacuum. Um, they're part of a really interesting and very exciting new movement, relatively new movement within the indie video game community that's really pushing the boundaries and taking video the video game medium as far as it can go.
0: Her film, called Thank You for Playing, debuts on PBS this year. That's Colorado Matters for today. From Colorado Public Radio, I'm Ryan Warner